it's great to see all of you this morning. Um, I am uh, really excited to be here. I'm still trying to learn how to pronounce your, your town's name. It's Covington? Is that correct? All right. All right. We're off to a good start then. Um, and uh, Pastor Adam almost pronounced all the names correctly. He actually got the hardest one correct, which is Aramira. And uh, Aramira actually means, mir, mir means good, and air means air. So it's like good air, like you, you smell good. Okay? So, but don't walk up to her and tell her she smells good because that's creepy. But I do that. I do that. Um, and and the, the, da- the daughter is not Eliza, it's Elisa. And uh, we actually went through a whole mall trying to determine that that would be her name. Because here we say Eliza, but over there they say Eliza. And we're like, oh, do we want her to be Eliza here, Eliza there in Albania, which I'll talk about in a minute. We're like, I don't know. And so we went through the mall and we finally decided, no, Elisa it will be. And we think it's a very beautiful name. Do you like your name, Elisa? Oh, she left. Well, <laughs> I, I think she likes your name. Um, and Eliezer uh, is also an uncommon name, but we, we named him after Eliezer of Damascus because uh, he, was the, he was the high servant of Abraham, and he was actually going to get all of Abraham's wealth at one point, right? Or at least that's how it looked, because Abraham didn't have an heir. But then he did, Isaac. And what does Eliezer of Damascus do? He goes and he finds a wife for Isaac, right? He gets right on board with what God is doing. We thought, well, that's a cool thing. This is a hard name to pronounce, but we're going to do it anyway. Um, and then we have Zana. And baby Zana, that's a, that's a very Albanian name. My wife is Albanian. And it means voice. Um, she, was, uh, she almost didn't make it because it was a very difficult pregnancy. We didn't think we were going to be going anywhere. I was overseas in uh, North Macedonia for eight years. And I met my wife there. And we got married and spent the, the second half of those eight years together. And uh, when we got back, um, she had what's called a scar ectopic pregnancy. I won't go into all the details of that, but it was very complicated. Um, we, we didn't really think that the medical situation would allow us to go anywhere ever again, um, but, but Zana is doing very well, and my wife has recovered very well, and we're very grateful that God's left us intact, and we can, we can go overseas again, which I want to tell you a lot about, but if I do that, you're not going to stay, right? So I, I'm not going to. Uh, but I, I do have some other things that I'll tell you after, after the sermon is done. So um, let's have a sermon in our verses in Acts. But before that, let's pray. Oh God, our Father, what a privilege it is to call you that. Uh, you have not dealt with us according to our sins. You have not made us subjects of your wrath. Uh, instead, you have given us Jesus. Oh Lord Jesus, creator, redeemer, sustainer, and friend. It's through your death we receive life. Through your blood, your righteousness. And you have not left us alone. Oh, Holy Spirit, comforter, convincer, you who are actively shaping us into the image of our Lord and drawing people to him. Please, Holy Spirit, don't don't let us be without your presence this morning. We don't want to just read about your work here in the book of Acts. We want to be God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Show us our Lord today and make us like him. Show us his plan and teach us to walk in his ways. In Christ's name, amen. In the late 18th century, we have William Carey. And William Carey was convinced early on 
that the gospel was meant to go out to all the nations. Some of you might be familiar with him. He believed that, that Jesus' command to make disciples of all nations was binding for all Christians, including the Christians of his day. And inspired by the journals of explorer Captain James Cook for the transportation means of beginning such a, a gospel-spreading enterprise, he wrote an inquiry into the obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathens. I'll try to say that five times fast, right? Such were the titles in his day. Well, on Wednesday, May 31st, 1792, he preached a sermon from Isaiah 42, or excuse me, 54, verses 2 through 3, and in this sermon, he makes his famous statement, expect great things for God. Do you know the second part? Attempt great things for God. So, Expect great things from God. Attempt great things from God. It was a very passionate sermon, passionately delivered from Isaiah 54. And you know what happened? Nothing. <laughs> the congregation was completely unmoved and unimpressed, and they left. Okay? He reportedly turned to a friend, and he said, Are we not going to do anything? Oh, let us do something to answer God's call. Thursday, the next day, June 1st, 1792, Carey presents his idea for a missionary society, that paper I just, I'm not going to read the title again, presents his idea to a group of ministers. In response, an older man says, <clears throat> Young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do it without your aid or mine. And he sounded exactly like that. But Carey presses on. A missionary society was eventually formed, uh, starting with 12 small churches. Carey himself did Bible translation work in India in 36 different languages and dialects. He went uh, to India in 1793 and died there without returning home. He was there for 40 years. He's sometimes affectionately called the father of modern missions. Well, question for you. Uh, going off what you've just heard about William Carey and his experience with the church, what would you say is the relationship between the local church and missions? How would you characterize it based on that story? If you're convinced that the command of Jesus in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 is, is true and binding for the Christian today, as Carey was, what is your expectation from a church after hearing a story like that? An An obstacle? to overcome, perhaps? Maybe, maybe an audience that requires a lot of convincing? Well, today, in, in Acts 13, 1 through 3, I, I want us to see three things that I think is going to transform whatever impression you have right now of that Carrie story concerning the mission and the church's relationship to that mission. So I, I talked to Adam a little bit about this might sound a little self-serving. You know, you're a missionary, and now you're going to teach us a sermon all about missions? Well, good for you. It's like, but, but Adam is saying, well, it might be helpful if we, if we see the connection between the church and the mission of God and, and what that might be. And the best place I could think to go uh, after thinking about it was to Acts verses 1 through 3. Now, it, Acts is a little bit tricky, right? Because it's a narrative. So some of the things that we're going to see here, we're going to see other things and other parts of Acts also, right? So you're going, to see, you're going to see Philip, for example, 
who's going to be moved by the Holy Spirit. He's going to find an Ethiopian eunuch. That man is going to become a Christian, and he's going to be baptized right there. That's not what we're going to see here, okay? And, and there are going to be other times in history. You've got a guy named Raymond Lull, okay? He's, he becomes a Christian in the 1200s, and he wants to take the gospel to Tunisia, and he wants to speak to Muslims about the Trinity and the resurrection. And he keeps trying to get support from the church, but the church he was part of was the Roman Catholic Church, and the popes were imprisoning each other and killing each other. So he never did get support from the Catholic Church in the way that he thought he would, but he still went about that ministry that the Lord had called him to. So I don't mention those things to undercut what we're going to look at here. I'm just saying, let's not limit the way that the Holy Spirit might work and call people and act within history. But at this point in history, I think we see see three things that are going to blow our minds. Uh, One is a model. Second thing is a mirror. And yes, the third thing is a message. I didn't really go for M&Ms on purpose, but that's what it is. So model, mirror, message. And then the message is over. Now I think the model, and the model of what, would be uh, the relationship between church and missions work. I think this model has two parts in our text. Um, Part one, the Holy Spirit is asking a church to send people to plant churches. That's what ends up happening. Second part, the church has to be okay with its heart being ripped out. Now, that might not be clear to you, but we'll get there, okay? So let's look at the first one. Doesn't something about the verses, I don't know if you remember them from before, doesn't something about this situation seem surprising? Let Let me read a little bit more from our verses. Now, there was, excuse me, now there were in the church, now to be clear, if I said, hey, uh, Pastor Dennis, Pastor Adam, I'm in the church, what would they think? They'd probably think I'm standing right here, somewhere in this room, right? It's like, this is not what they're talking about here. This this church is is a fellowship of believers, okay? So there was a fellowship of believers in Antioch that has prophets and teachers, and then it names them. Barnabas, Simon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, each of these guys gets a special social indicator because apparently there are more than one Simon, Simeon in those days, more than one Lucius, and more than one Manan. So they added a characteristic of that person's life, right? One person called Niger, which just means dark or black, Lucius of Cyrene, so it's a geographical indicator, and then Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. So it seems like he was a play, playmate of this famous person when he was a kid. So everybody could know which Manan we're talking about here. Now, who doesn't get an indicator? We don't get an indicator for Barnabas, that's right, and we don't get an indicator for Saul. And why might that be? Because we've already heard about them, right? And they're going to feature later as well. So we know who these guys are. We know that Barnabas in Acts 4, who is a, who is a Levite, is going to sell a field, and he's going to give all the proceeds to the church, and the church is going to rejoice, and Barnabas is going to be called the son of encouragement. We also remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira, who tried to give money but without the same heart commitment, right? And they, they were struck down by the Lord for lying. But don't, that's normally the part that takes the spotlight, right? Remember, Barnabas is this guy who caused the whole church to, to rejoice and say, you are the son of encouragement. Who's Saul? 
Well, Saul is also Paul. Okay, it's a little confusing. Actually, it's in this chapter where he starts switching from Saul to Paul. But Saul is on the road to Damascus when what happens? He's blinded by a light, and the Lord himself speaks to him and stops him in his tracks, right? Why do I say all this? Well, because we shouldn't be surprised, I don't think, that the Holy Spirit has work for Barnabas and Saul to do. They are, in fact, even right now serving the church and had been serving the believers up to this present moment. So what is the surprise then? I think the surprise is that the Holy Spirit didn't just go straight to them. The, the, the church in Antioch doesn't wake up one day and say, well, where did, where did Saul and Barnabas go? Oh, they were whisked away by the Holy Spirit. They're doing their thing. I don't know. It's like, that's not what it says. It says that while they, these leaders in the church in Antioch, were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Well, for me, this raises eyebrows, right? Because the Holy Spirit is actually going through the church in order to call these two men to go do work that the Holy Spirit has for these two men. Well, we can, we can put our eyebrows down because we're going to talk about this a little more later. But the next question I think we have to ask is, like, what is this work that Saul and Barnabas were being called to do? Well, they're being called to do a couple things, right? They did, they did go to, initially, Jews who would reject them, and then they went to Gentiles. Some of them would receive them. To Jews and then Gentiles, Jews and then Gentiles. They did this three times, and then they came back to Antioch. Well, what were they doing? They were evangelizing. They were, they were telling people the gospel. And they weren't doing it from, from the New Testament. They were doing it from the Old Testament scriptures. And what was happening? Well, people were, were coming to the Lord. Not always, but they would. There would be pockets of people that were responding positively to the Lord, and they were being converted. And that was it. No, it wasn't. Because we see at the end of the trip, he comes through, Saul and Barnabas, and they start establishing leadership and all the churches that had been planted as a result of the evangelization. They were planting churches. So I think it's important to remember that we, we, have, we have evangelization first. You can't plant a churches, without, churches without believers, it doesn't seem, right? But then you have churches. And so we see that evangelism results in conversions. Conversions result in church planning. And uh, our first part of this model appears to be that the Holy Spirit asks a church to send people out to plant churches. That's what we see in this, in this passage so far. What's the second part of the model? Something to do with ripping hearts out, as I recall. Well, how, how, do, how do verse 2 and 3 go? It says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Okay? So what is, he asking, what is the Holy Spirit asking from these people to do? Set apart these two people. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So sent them off is what they do. Now, it may surprise you, but did you know that in Luke 6.22, when Jesus is saying, blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your, your name as evil on account of the Son of Man, it might surprise you that that word exclude, same word as what they're being called to do right now, set apart Barnabas and Saul. You know what they do? They send them off, right? We remember that, right? It might surprise you 
that in Matthew, this same word is used for divorce. If you're going to send somebody away and, and never see them again. Now you're saying, David, you know better. Context is king. You know that's not what's going on here. It's like, yes, we do, actually. And we have two indications that make for sure certain they're not doing that. They're not, they're not cutting these Saul and Barnabas off in a way that's like, you're dead to us. Go ahead and play, play for the green team now. You know, we're on the blue team. The points you make, you make. The points we make, we make. And at the end of the day, we'll, we'll see who won, all right? But we're, we're done. That's actually not what's going on. But it is very strong language. It's not the Holy Spirit saying, hey, because we talk this way, I think. I'm, I'm going to prompt you a little on this day prompt you a little more this day? No, it's like, set them apart. I need them for work I have. And it wasn't them thinking, well, we'll see if the Holy Spirit still thinks this way in a month or two. No, they finished their praying and fasting, and they sent them off. Okay, we're leaving out one important detail that we're going to come back to, but they sent them off. So wh- why are they doing this? Well, if I'm working on a book or something or writing something, project, and my wife, Eremira, comes to me, and she's cooking something in the kitchen, and yes, it does smell good, and she says, hey, I got to leave right now. I really need you to turn off the oven at a certain time, or dinner will burn, and I don't want that to happen. All right, yep. No, 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 no. Uh, If you could set an alarm, that would be good. I was like, okay, okay. Did you set it? It's like, uh, yep, yep, yep. Okay. Is the sound on, on your alarm? Uh, ooh, yep, it is now. Okay, now you might think, well, you just have a, you just have a naggy wife. No, no, no. I have a wife that knows me. (laughs) And I have a wife that knows how distracted I get when I'm doing anything. And somebody says, hey, can you do this? And I say, yep. And she knows that that yep doesn't mean anything until she prods a little deeper, right? I think the Holy Spirit's being so clear with this church because of how hard what they're about to do is going to be. It's not, it's not the kind of thing where it's like, hey, I'm going to keep up with you guys on Insta, okay? So when you go out, make sure to take pictures because I want to see what you're doing. It's like, no, th- these people might go out and they just might die. They might never come back again. I don't know about you, but I don't just fast and pray with anybody, these are, these are people that, that are very close to each other, and they're saying goodbye, and it might be forever. They don't know. They just know that the, the Holy Spirit is requiring this of them. So I think if you got Simeon, who is called Niger, or Lucius of Cyrene, or Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, in here to preach this sermon, you might say to them, hey guys, you know, it sounds a little cold what you're doing to Saul and Barnabas, just sending them out like that. Yeah, I know, but like if the Holy Spirit hadn't been so clear, but the Holy Spirit was clear. He wanted these people for a work right now. And we know that they still had a warm feeling towards each other when they left. It wasn't blue team, green team. How do we know that? Because at the end of chapter 14, what do we read? We read, and from there, the place they were before, they sailed to Antioch, where they had been, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. So they're done with this missionary journey. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them 
and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And, I think this verse is great, and they remained there no little time with the disciples. They remained there no little time with the disciples. They were eager to return and be part of this fellowship again. Bruised and battered. You know, Saul had, Paul, Saul, had just been stoned when he's coming back. So he definitely had the marks of the journey on him. And they remained there no little time with the disciples. I'll give you the second reason why I think uh, there's a very warm connection between this church and the two men they're about to send out. The second reason is what they do in the laying on of hands. Okay? This is another thing where people lay their hands on each other now for different you know, reasons now. Um, sometimes it's just to show comfort and compassion. Sometimes it's just to uh, maybe signify that you know, I'm praying and I'm praying for you. Okay? I think there's more to it than that in this case. Okay, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with doing that, but I think in this case, there might be more going on, and there very likely is. I don't know if you remember, at the end of Deuteronomy, Moses knows he's, he's going out, he's going to die. Who's going to be a successor? Do you remember? Joshua. Joshua is going to be a successor. And what does it signify, what does it say in Deuteronomy 34.9? It says that Moses puts his hand on Joshua, and the result is the people start listening to Joshua as though he were Moses. That's the result in Deuteronomy 34.9. In Numbers 8.10-11, you have all the people of Israel, which I don't know how they did this, okay, but this is symbolic, of all the people of Israel putting their hands on the Levites, and then the Levites go do their service before the Lord. What was that signifying? I think it was signifying that the people of Israel saying, Levites, you're going to serve the Lord on our behalf. Your behalf too, but all of us. We are, we are ministering to the Lord in the way that the Lord is required together, but you're doing it. You're an extension of us now. But then I think even more significantly, it was like, ah, new times. We're in Acts now. That's way back then. These are all Jews, so I don't think it's really way back then because they would have been reading these stories and familiar with what these things meant. But Acts 6.6, 6, you have the apostles put their hands on the first deacons. Do you remember the apostles were trying to do everything to minister to the church? And like, well, we, we should be praying. We should be studying God's word so that we can share God's word. And so tending tables and taking care of widows, here, let's do this will lay our hands on seven deacons, and then they'll become an extension of the ministry of the church, such that we're not neglecting what we have before us to do before the Lord, but we're able to get it done because we've made this extension through deacons to take care of these issues. Well, now it means a little bit different, something a little bit different, right? When we see that after fasting and praying, they lay their hands on them and sent them off. I would argue that what they're doing when they do that is they're fully obeying the Holy Spirit. And they are also communicating to Saul and Barnabas that we're with you. Your obedience to the Lord is our obedience to the Lord. Your gospel ministry is now an extension of our gospel ministry as, as people who are not a part 
underneath the Lord, but now are doing ministry in separate parts of the world. I don't think, I don't think that's a small thing. And because of that, it's part of the model, right? So we've got two parts for our model, and this is actually the longest point, so don't worry. There are two more points, but they're shorter. The, the first part of the model is that the Holy Spirit asks the church to send people out to plant more churches, it turns out, right? Second part of the model, and we don't have to say, you know, that their, their hearts were ripped out and bled, if that, if that doesn't work for us. We can say that they saw themselves by laying their hands on them as an extension of their obedience to the, the Holy Spirit in another place. Or maybe put differently, they saw their gospel ministry of Saul and Barnabas as an extension of the gospel ministry of that local church. I think, I think, that's, what, I think that's fair. Now we come to the mirror, okay? I think we could probably follow the per- first part of the model pretty well, okay? So they, they plant churches. That makes sense. It's probably not totally foreign to us anyway. Might emphasize that a little more than we're used to. But it's the second part of the model, the extension of it. Uh, we, we may not be as torn apart when people leave our orbit, right? I mean, if I have a friend and he's going to go to college and it's not where he thought he was going to go, he's going to go to some other state, I don't fall apart, right? That happens. And you might be thinking to yourself, too, it's like, well, I mean, so we sent a missionary, and how, like, how do I become that, that vested in this? I don't, I don't really get it. And you can tell me, you know, listen to the Holy Spirit. I'll, I'll try to do that. You can tell me what to do. I'll, I'll try to send them. You know, if they need something, I'll try to get it. But, but don't tell me how I'm supposed to feel related to these things. I mean, other people feel. They feel the way they feel. I feel the way I feel. Okay? Ah, well, there's the mirror right there. We're seeing something, right? We're seeing something about ourselves that we might not have known before. And other people actually see it pretty easily. Some time ago, after completing a two-month lecture tour at American universities, poet Vladimir Korotic made the following remark in a Russian literary journal. He said, Attempts to please an American audience are doomed in advance because out of 20 listeners, five may hold one point of view, Seven, another, and eight may have none at all. Well, I think this was Vladimir Karotich's way of pointing out what many before him and many after him have called individualism, right? Did you know that America came in first place in a competition? Some researchers did a study in 2010. They lined up 79 countries figured out which ones of them were the most individualistic and who came out number one, the U.S. of A. We are, we are the number one most individualistic country in the world. Now, I recognize that we might not all be from the same place. You know, we're also the melting pot of the world, so maybe you're hearing, you're like, that's not me. I mean, I, sorry for you guys, you know. But as a whole, Americans are extremely individualistic. Now, how might that affect if we go read the verses that William Carey read earlier and believed in. In Matthew 28, 19 through 20, if we read those verses, it says, I'll start at 16. When the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So if I'm reading that, one, I might be thinking, oh, planting churches probably makes a lot of sense now because churches are a great place to make disciples and to baptize people and to be together on that, right? But the other thing I'm thinking is like, well, who should be a missionary? Who should do this thing that I'm hearing about in these verses? It sounds like a command. It's not really optional, but like who's supposed to be listening to this command? You know, is it me? Is it, is it you? Well, some of the way that people get there is you think, well, I mean, do I have a strong desire to be a missionary? Maybe that's the way that, that Jesus calls people into this line of work. And some people do. They, they really do. You might think, well, I don't have a strong desire, but I do have a sense that I'm called to do this. Um, you, you, may, you may think that it, it makes sense that I should go, even if I don't super want to. Right? You might have that response to a, a personal calling. Or some people think, you know, it might be a product of Christian maturity. I mean, look at these guys. Were, were Saul and Paul ready to go when they were born? No. God had to do work in them. God's working in me. Maybe that's later. Maybe that's tomorrow. It's just not today. You, you go, with, go through life wondering if you'll, you'll reach that level of maturity to go and do something like that. Uh, other people think, well, maybe it's a particular aptitude or gifting. Maybe you're really good at languages. Maybe you really like other cultures. Maybe you're good at getting to know other people that are not like you. So you figure out if that's you or if that's not you. I heard one pastor say, and I thought this was very helpful, actually. Um, don't say, should I be a missionary? Say, why should I not be a missionary? So instead of qualifying yourself, disqualify yourself. I think that was, that was helpful. I heard another pastor say, there are goers, there are senders, and there are disobedient. Right? And so you're like, well, I think I don't want to be the third one. So I got to pick between those other two. Am I a goer or a sender? And then you figure it out, right? Maybe doing some things from those other four things I, I mentioned earlier. Do you hear us right now? <laughs> Do you hear how individualistic that is? We're, we're, we're considering ourselves uh, on, an, on an, uh, relating things that determine whether we should be a missionary or not. And we're, we're worried you know, that we, you know, I want, I, want, I want myself to value things rightly. I want to make sure myself isn't disobedient to this command of Christ so that myself knows myself's calling. Is myself a goer or a sender? I know, forgive the bad grammar, I'm just trying to highlight the myself about this, okay? Well, when Jesus is giving the Great Commission, I'm pretty sure the disciples aren't all thinking, who's going to obey this? Like, is this for me? Am I a sender or a goer? And they're thinking, of course this is for us. He's talking to us right now. And I think the next thought, and this is key, I think the next thought would be, how are we going to obey this? I think that would have been the next, the next thing on their mind. There was, there's a natural we-ness. There's a togetherness in, in obeying the Lord. So the other, the other side of the coin, if you're talking about individualism, is, is collectivism. Okay? They, they were a very collectivist society. 
They did things together. It also makes sense that if you lay your hand on someone and say, hey, we're with you, brother. You're still us. We're still you. You're just in another place obeying the Lord. That would have been a very natural thing to do. This, this togetherness that they're, that they're going to push for as much as they can to be together in their church planning and together in their church and together in the Lord, even together in their fasting, that would have been a natural cult, cultural thing to do. If we're going to do things, we're going to do them together. What, where does that leave us, though? Are we going to like, well, Dave Snyder preached a sermon, and now we're all rewired from being the number one individualist in the world to some version of collectivists. It's like, I, I don't think so. And I actually don't even think that's what the Lord is going to require of us. I don't think we know exactly what the Lord is going to require of us at this point in the sermon. But let me, give you a, let me give you maybe something that would help us think about this on a smaller scale, that would apply to all of us in some way. Are we all familiar with like um, introversion and extroversion? Yeah? So probably somebody's asked you, are you an extrovert? And it's like, what does that mean? Are you an introvert? What does that mean? Basically just means like if you're an introvert, you charge up by being away from the crowd, right? Maybe you're reading a book. Maybe you're just doing your own thing, looking in the sky. We don't know. But if you're an extrovert, you're with people. And you're, you're charging up being with people. Now, to, truth be told, I am an introvert. Um, so don't, don't be afraid. I am charged up. So please talk to me. I'm totally fine. All right? It's not a disease. It's just the way that people are wired, right? Now, if I'm an introvert and I don't really get energized by hanging out with people, do I all of a sudden not have an obligation to love my neighbor. I don't, right? I'm going to have to figure out like, how to do that. Well, it might be harder for me in some ways than my extroverted friend to do that because it costs me different things that it doesn't cost that friend. But I'm going to have to figure out how to do that. Now, if I'm an extrovert, is it possible that I'm going to have to look at my neighbor in a light other than wind in my sails? Probably, right? I don't know what that looks like. Maybe buying your introvert friend a book. I have no idea. I'm not an extrovert, but I've been around a lot of them, and I realize that this is a struggle for both sides. How do we love our neighbor well, wired the way, and given the gifts that, that God has given us to have and bring glory to him? And it's going to be different for different people, and I think there's a lot of application for that here in this situation. Is the ancient church more collectivist than we are today? Yes, for certain. Is that ancient church going to have a much harder time letting go of people? When the Holy Spirit says, you've got to let this guy go to go serve the Lord over here. Yes, it's going to be so hard. And there are places in the world where it's still going to be so hard for a church to send somebody off that they love that deeply and they hang around with that much. But if, if, we're, if we're not them, if, we are, if we're individuals, and I understand, I'm meeting you for the first time, right? So you're like, well, you pretend to know a lot about us, don't you? I'm going off studies, and I'm trusting them a little bit, and I think it's probably true, okay, that Americans on the whole, even here in Covington, are, tend to be individualistic, okay? Well, what, are, what would that be? What would, if that's true, I don't know, maybe nod your head if that's partly true. A few nods, okay? If that's true, then what are we going to struggle to do? We're going to struggle to have the level of togetherness that plants healthy churches, right? To be on the same page in the way that we, we know each other. We know our confidence in the gospel. 
We know where we are weak and where we are strong and the maturity levels we have. And we, we know how to speak into each other's lives. And we know that when we send somebody off that we're going to support and pray for, that when we lay our hands on them, you know, that they're becoming an extension of the same gospel that we're preaching and we're living by in our hometown. But that's a struggle, right? So we're going we're gonna to struggle in different ways. And that's the mirror. This is a mirror. It helps us see ourselves a little bit better. Well, now we're to the message. So is the message of this whole sermon work harder? <laughs> have, a, have a better model? Make sure you include both parts. Look in the mirror and then see what it is you have to work on? I don't think so. I don't, I don't think that's the main message of Acts 13, 1 through 3. That's not what these, these five guys are doing. What, what are they doing? They're worshiping the Lord, right? This all stems from, from worshiping the Lord. When Jesus says at the end of Matthew 28 there, that he's going to be with his disciples always, even to the end of the age, what does he do? He leaves, right? He's like, well, how does that work? You left. No, because he comes back in the form of his spirit, right? Who he promises will be his comforter, will be their comforter. And so the Lord is with us. And we may sometimes take the Holy Spirit's work for granted. We may think, well, if I'm going to go plant a church, I don't know if people are going to listen or if their hearts are going to turn, I guess we just, we really need the Holy Spirit to like make our work work. It's like, I don't, I don't think that's the way, right way to talk about that, is it? I mean, if, if we're reading these verses, it's actually the Holy Spirit that comes up with the whole work. He says, hey, I need Saul and Barnabas for work that I have for them to do. And the very next verse, verse four, is so the Spirit sent out Saul and Barnabas. It's, it's all the Lord. Everything we have is from him. I don't think the message is to work harder. I think the message is to delight in our Lord and to truly worship him from the heart. And I think when we see, we see Jesus for who he really is, we, we'll find the right kind of togetherness and the right kind of apartment, a, apartness that's needed to follow him by his spirit for his glory. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for allowing us to be here uh, together. Um, there are lots of dimensions to being together. And there are lots of dimensions to being apart. But none of these things escape your notice. The fact is, God, you, you saw us and you see us even now. And you don't love us more because we're from one culture or another the end of days, we're all going to be before your throne, singing your praise and worshiping you. And we, we start that now when you call us to yourself. So I, I, I pray, God, that you would uh, give us grace, give us more and more grace to follow your spirit, to give you glory in this age, to love one another deeply, but also Send one another faithfully for the sake of the name. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.